This sermon was recorded at the Church of Christ, Wheeler area, located at 1500 South Allen L. Bean Boulevard in Wheeler, Texas. Our regular meeting times are at 10.30 a.m. and 2.30 p.m. each Sunday. Come join us as we seek to worship God in spirit and in truth. At the request of your leadership, we're going to study things this week that relate to ethical, moral, Christian values, what we label as morality. These will be things that especially relate to a lot of alarming voices that we hear speaking in our world today and cries for change and ongoing change. Some of this deals with sensitive issues, but these are issues that are talked about in Scripture. And we will talk about these things from a scriptural standpoint and from the platform that says God is right. And a lot of people take a lot of exception to that. They either want to deny that God exists or they want to try to redesign and refashion God in their image instead of conforming their image and their way to the will of God. And this week's lessons, and in particular this morning's lesson, is to serve notice that God will have none of it. And there are those who would, with anger, protest that. And the great thing about God is that he loves us all, even those who protest him. And in that love, God will give everybody their day in court. Every person who wants to say that what God's will is and what God's way is is not right, every person will get their chance to appear before the judgment seat of Christ and make their case that they're right and God is wrong. And if you want to read about how that might go, read the story of Job and he wanted his day in court and God granted him his wish and it didn't go so well for him. And he was a godly man. So think about what it would be like for the ungodly. That should be a sobering thought. Let God be true. We find this title and theme in the text of the morning in Romans chapter 3, verse 3 and 4. Where the writer of the Roman letter, the apostle Paul, poses this question. For what if some did not believe? Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? God forbid. Yea, let God be true and every man a liar. That is written that thou mightest be justified in thy sayings and mightest overcome when thou art judged. So here the Apostle Paul and the, the theme of what he's talking about at this particular point in the Roman letter, he poses a question that's based on the fact that some people doubted God. They doubted what he said. They doubted what he promised. They doubted his will. And so Paul asks this question. So does their doubting God make God's faith or his reliability no longer there? Does that make it without effect? Because they disagree with God, does that mean God is wrong? We could rephrase it that way. And Paul answers very clearly, no. God forbid. That's the strongest way he could say no. God forbid. Let God be true and every man a liar. And that's how it is. 
what God says is right. And somebody over here disagreeing with that doesn't change the rightness of what God says. God has made us free to choose. And somebody can foolishly choose to disagree with God and insist that their way and their preferences is the way it ought to be or the way that it is. But that doesn't change the fact that God is right. And the only human is right is the human that comes to agreement with God. And then we're right not because the rightness is within us, but then we're right because we've attached ourselves to the correctness of God. For he is the ultimate authority because he is our creator. It's kind of interesting as humans. We very well understand the idea that if I make it, if I bought it, if I built it, if I own it, it's mine. And I can do with it what I want. I love feeling that way about my stuff. And I bet you do too. Until we stop and realize that we are that creation and God is the master. And we belong to him because he made us. And we are, this earth is, this universe is, the material world is, all that is, is his stuff. And is within his rights as creator to make the rules as they suit him. And us not liking it or disagreeing with it doesn't change it one whit. And as we bring the point to that, you can imagine the stubborn human heart welling up inside us and resisting and saying, no, that I don't like it that way until we switch it back over to my stuff and the thing that I built and what I bought. And then all of a sudden I understand the right of ownership and the authority that goes with it. And that brings us to the central issue. It's pride, it's exaltation of self, and a failure to honor God. That will be the subject of our study today. God is the standard. In 1 Samuel 8 and 7, Samuel the prophet dealt with a rebellious people of God, the nation of Israel. <clears throat> they were demanding that he step down as Israel's judge and that he be replaced with a monarchy, with a king. And the Lord talked to Samuel to console him about all that was going on with this and to explain to him what the root problem was. The Lord said to Samuel, Hearken to the voice of the people in all that they say unto thee. (coughs) For they have not rejected thee, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. Here God introduced Samuel the prophet and subsequently you and I to the idea that when people reject God's plan, they're rejecting God. And they're rejecting God's authority and his right to rule them. And I would submit to you that that is the case Anytime man rebels against God. In the parable of the pounds, Christ illustrates this concept in talking about his right to rule his kingdom. And he talks about those who reject his rule when he said in Luke 19 and 14, but his citizens hated him and sent a message after him saying, we will not have this man to reign over us. And that's at the heart of the moral confusion that is so torturous in our society today and frankly always has been it's just visible in ways today that we more readily notice and are understandably and rightfully concerned about 
People are essentially saying, I'm not going to let God reign over me. I don't want to let God make the rules. I want to get to make the rules. But God is the standard because he is the creator. Psalms 33 and 6, by the word of the Lord were the heavens made and all the host of him of them by the breath of his mouth. <clears throat> it is the power of God's spoken word that said, let there be light. And let there be, and let there be, as you read through the Genesis creation account nine times, let there be, and it was so. <clears throat> That's the authority of heaven. And that creation act is what God gives, gives God full authority over his creation and his creatures, you and I included. In Psalms 95, verse 3 through 5, the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hands are the deep places of the earth. The strength of the hills is also his. The sea is his, and he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. This passage joins multiple others in scriptures, especially the book of Psalms, that celebrate God's authority over creation because he's the creator. Just as I said in the introduction, it's his stuff. He made it. And we therefore belong to him. In Psalms 9 and 16, the Lord is known by the judgment which he executeth. The wicked is snared in the work of his own hands. Hegeon Selah. Those last two words, are, are it's hard for us to understand what they mean. The general idea is that that's a way of saying stop and think about it or meditate. They think it might be a, a musical designation that says stop the song now and think about it. So that's how we're going to approach it. <laughs> Let's stop the song here. That's what Psalms 9 is. It's a book of Psalms. Let's think about this. God is known by his judgment. So God made the world. He said it's mine. I make the rules. And then he revealed to us through his word that I am known. I am defined by the righteousness with which I judge this place. Now, what, what does that mean? Well, what that means is the wicked is snared in the work of their own hands. So that when the wicked rise up and they question God's judgment, they question his right to make the rules, they question the rules that he made, they, by virtue of the attitudes and actions, say, we're not going to have him reigning over us. They trap themselves in that own pride. Let's just make sure that they, them, isn't me and you. Because of the idea of a rejection of God, that, that's not just a threat outside these walls. That's a threat that you and I have to be mindful of within our own hearts. So the idea and the hope in our study of the hour is not just to criticize the other person and think of what somebody else is saying and they and them. That needs to be talked about. But I need to be willing to turn the light of God's judgment as is expressed in his word on my own heart. And make sure that I'm not in some way in my life blind to my own view, rejecting God's right to rule. God is the standard because he's the creator. And therefore his word is the guide. Through Jeremiah the prophet, in these words we find, O Lord, I know that the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man that walketh to direct his steps. Look at the contrast between what this passage teaches and the stubbornness and the rebellion of the human heart. It's my life. I'll live it how I want. 
I, this is my truth. You go have your truth and I'll have my truth. We read it in the psalm this morning. God's truth is everlasting. There is one truth and it belongs to God. And I either submit to it or I become a liar in rejecting it. Because let God be true and every man a liar. But in that stubborn insistence that I'm going to have my way and live my life and I mean mine in that pride, I reveal it's not within me to direct myself because I would seek direction that would satisfy whatever particular desire I might have that might be against the will of God. So I can't be trusted and you can't either and neither can anybody else. So what do we have to do? We have to humbly recognize it's not within us to guide ourselves. The way of man is not in himself. We need help. And that is very evident. And behind a lot of the philosophies of rebellion and what's so common today and people insisting on a different set of values that celebrates all manner of lifestyles that God has designated as evil Behind all of that is the insinuation that we have the answer ourselves. It's called humanism. I remember in that plus 40 years ago being down in East Alabama and visiting with a sister who was north of 80 and she had taught school for years and she was talking to myself and a couple other young brothers in the church and she says, boys, I'm going to warn you, the threat of the future is humanism. She had taught school for years, and she said, I've seen it in the schools. I've seen it coming up in the education system. And, I, you know, that was at a time that we would point back to now and say, well, that, that was the good old days. You know, things weren't quite as bad then as they are now. But she saw it coming. Humanism. And I, I didn't even fully understand what she meant by humanism. What she meant was man rising up and becoming his own God and making his own rules. And did she nail it? Well, it wasn't new from that time forward. It's been going on since the fall in the garden. Well, but we can figure this out. We can solve our own problems. We'll get our heads together, and you know what? We can't do it. Think of the ways that humanity has failed in our efforts to make life what it should be. Think of all the problems that plague humanity, the violence, the strife, the want, the hunger, the inequity, Whatever you think is fair or not fair, everybody agrees that there's a lot goes on out there that's not fair and it's bad and this world is broken. And have we managed to fix it? Just think of the wars alone. Just in recent times, in comparatively recent history, let's go back to 1900. How many times have nations got together and contrived human organizations that said, we're going to fix this problem, and we're going to have peace across the globe. I'm glad those people have tried to do that. I want them to keep that up. But I'll tell you, that's not where I place my hopes because it's not within man to solve our own problems. <clears throat> I've tried to put together a list of all the wars in known human history. I know you can't read that. <laughs> It's very small because that's what it took to get it all on the screen. There's more than what I have on this list. This is the result of humanism. This is the result of we can fix it ourselves. That's just going to keep going. I'm going to speed this up. 
and it's still going. And I, I'm sorry, it's going to be going next week and next month and next year until the Lord comes. Because it's not within us to fix what's wrong with us. We're not the solution. We're part of the problem. And that's why we have to let God be true and we can't afford to trust ourselves and humanity. We need God's word as the guide. Psalms 19 and 8, the statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. God is right. If there's something out there that he says it's wrong, it doesn't matter how I feel about that thing that God has labeled wrong. It doesn't matter how much I might want to participate in that or defend it or celebrate it or whatever. If God said it's right, it's right. And if he said it's wrong, it's wrong. In Psalm 119 verse 128, Therefore I esteem all thy precepts concerning all things to be right. And I hate every false way. And this is where we come to the fork in the road. You heard the old saying when you're giving directions, you know, through hard to locate lo uh, uh, places. When you get to the fork in the road, take it. Well, here's the fork in the road. I can esteem God's precepts and that regard that everything he says is right because he's God and the creator. In which case I have to hate every false way. Or I can decide that I know better than the one that created me and we all get together and we can know better than the one who created us and we can reject his rule and get our day in court. That's the fork in the road. How about we decide that God is right but understand when we embrace that, that requires that we reject evil. Not evil as I feel it. Not evil as I esteem it. Not evil as defined by my opinion but what God says is evil. Proverbs 30 and 6, add thou not to his words, lest he reprove thee and thou be found a liar. I'm at this point. If I'm going to let God be true, then I can't alter his word to suit what I want. I have to accept that his moral verdicts are unchangeable, that what he says is right. And I don't alter his will to accommodate me. I alter my behavior and my attitude to accommodate his will. So let's look at creation and what the created order says about human, human life, marriage, our identity, things like this. Genesis 1 and 27 says God created man in his own image and the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. This is why human life is valuable because God made us in his image. In Genesis 9 and verse 6, Whoso sheds man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed, for in the image of God made he man. This is God speaking his law about the sanctity of human life. It's a timeless law. It was the law of God during the patriarchal age. It was the law of God under Moses' law, and it's the law of God today. Human life has value and sanctity. Why? Because we're made in the image of God. Now, someone says that we ought to honor animal life. Well, we'll say some things about that. But in terms of ethical worth, animal life is not equal to God. 
I know they're fuzzy and furry, and some of them we kind of think are adorable, and some of them we really don't. You know, if there's a mouse or a rat anywhere near any place we live or ever have lived or ever will live, my wife wants it dead. She does not value that life. I'm thankful she does not feel that way about people. But the reason the human life is worth more than that rat life is not because of her feelings. It's because the human is made in God's image and the rat is obviously not. And so it's true because God said this is how it is. And based on the created order of us being made in his image, that means our life means something. And so I go to the garden yesterday and I pull a couple of onions to give to a friend and that onion dies. And that's no matter because the death of that onion wouldn't be the same as if some criminal kicked down my gate and walked in my backyard and shot me. It's just not the same. And and the reason it's not the same is not because of how you or I feel about it. It's because of what God says. Now think about that, how that flavors the issue like abortion. Boy, there's a hot button. Well, I'm going to tell you why it's a hot button. It's not because it's complicated and hard to figure out. It's because man wants to make his own rules. And if something's inconvenient, let's kill it. And for years... There's been an effort made to frame the whole abortion debate debate about exactly at what point does human life begin. And there's been one side that has said, well, it begins at conception. And so that's why abortion is wrong, because you're killing a human life, and we're made in God's image, and so that's not right. But the other side has said, oh, no, no, human life doesn't begin until birth. That's when it becomes sacred, and that's when it becomes wrong to tell. Okay, let's try that. So once they're born, we can't kill them. I hate talking about this kind of stuff. Have you ever read the testimony of abortion doctors that have talked about the failure of the procedure to kill the infant? And so that after the infant is born, they go ahead and finish the job. That awful. Well, I thought life began at birth and that that's what the debate was about and that's why we think abortion's okay because, well, they're, just, they're, they're in the womb but they're just a mass of tissue for now. They're not really a human until after they're born. And then I learned all of a sudden after they're born, we're going to snuff them out. How do you do that? I read another story the other day. It's so sad how many of these are multiplied of a baby that was rescued from a dumpster. How do you do that? Well, I'll tell you how you do that. You decide that you're God and not God, and so you get to make the rules, and if this is inconvenient, I'll just get rid of it. Until we... Just callous the human conscience and so, well, this is inconvenient and is there really that much difference? So I'll just get rid of it. And it goes all the way from in the womb right down to the end. And how many times have you seen a news headline about some western nation that's starting to exterminate the elderly? Oh, I know they don't call it exterminate. (laughs) They call it euthanasia. You know, they call it mercy killing. 
And sometimes it's at the request of the patient and sometimes it's not. It's happening with our neighbors to the north. It's happening, I'm talking about Canada, it's happening with our allies in Western Europe. It's happening around the world. Oh, in parts of the world that aren't so free, it's been going on for a long time. It's inconvenient. Snuff them out. There's a failure to honor the root God principle. See, that human life is sacred. See, what happens is when we start making the rules, we start out making a rule. We can kind of argue the case. Before long, it spirals out of control, and eventually you realize it's just about me and what I want to do. In Genesis 2, verse 18 through 20, the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a help meet for him. And out of the ground the Lord formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air and brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. And whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that was the name thereof. And Adam gave names to all cattle, to the fowl of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a help meet for him. In the modern humanist movement, you'll hear some voices that insist animal life is equal to human life, and it's not. And you know why it's not? It's not because how I feel about that animal. It's because of what God says. Now, I might be indifferent towards an animal when it's taken to slaughter and butchered so we'll have something to eat, but that's not why that animal life is not important. That animal life's not equal to human life because it's not the same. That's not equal companionship. Why? Because God said so. These animals are great. They're a blessing. But they're not the same as fellow humans. And that's why God made another human for Adam. Genesis 1 and 26, God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fowl of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Here God decreed that the animals are a gift and a blessing to us and we're to exercise our dominion over those animals. We can use them as beasts of burden. We can use them as pets for that limited companionship that they provide. We can use them. And if we're inclined to, we can eat them. Genesis 9 and 3, Every moving thing that liveth shall be meat for you, even as the green herb have I given you all things. And some protest and say, No, you can't kill those animals for food. That's murder. No, it's not. You know why it's not? Because Genesis 9 says the killing of a human is murder because we're made the image of God. And animals are not. It's different. You know why it's different? Because God said it's different. And how I feel about it is really irrelevant. What is relevant is will I submit my will to the will of God? Now someone might be quick to say, well, that's the problem I have with all you creationists. You believe in being cruel to animals. No, we don't. Proverbs 12 and 10 says, A righteous man regards the life of his beast, but the tenders of the mercies of the wicked are cruel. It's within the framework of God's ethics to say these animals are a gift. We don't abuse them. We use them. We use them as a gift from God, but we don't treat them with cruelty. You see one of these news stories, we see them at home every once in a while. You know, somebody's got all these horses and they don't feed them and they just 
cameras pan over there, and the horses just look awful, just bones and ribs sticking out. It's awful. How do you do that? You know, that's not right. And the reason that's not right is not because of how I emotionally respond to that image and think, well, gee, you shouldn't be mean to your horses. The reason that's not right is because the Lord said it's not right. God has given us things in this life as gifts. And because they're gifts, it's required of us to make proper use of them. And within the framework of that proper usage is the heart of tender mercy. So if we butcher them to eat, we do it quick and painless, don't we? I've done that before. I think most of you have done that before. That's why we do that. Because that's how to not be cruel with that. And to use that for its intended purpose. Let's talk about marriage. A lot of noise about that, isn't there? A lot of noise about it this month. Don't you think they named it right when they called it Pride Month? Because pride's the root problem. We're not going to have God making the rules and telling us we can't do what we want. They put a pretty good label on it. Genesis 2, 21 through 24, the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam and he slept and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof and the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made a woman and brought her to the man and God said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife and they shall be one flesh. This is where God instituted marriage. A lot of people today are arguing about what is or is not a marriage. And you know that gets into the question of same-gender marriage. And I'm going to tell you what, enough legislatures, no matter the number of legislatures that pass the laws to declare same-gender relations a marriage, make it a marriage. God says what is and is not a marriage. And if God says marriage is between a man and a woman, then two men or two women couldn't get married if they tried. I don't care if they label it that way. I don't care if they wear ten rings on each finger. Let God be true and every man a liar. Well, but you don't understand. I want. Yeah, I do understand. Humans want things that are different from the will of God. And we can submit to his will and humility and follow the rules that he's made and let God be true and every man a liar or we'll get our day in court and we'll get a chance to, to come before the throne of God and try to tell him he's wrong. It is what God says it is. There's two genders, male and female. And marriage is a relationship between male and female. And today all the noise about, you know, a man can become a woman and a woman can become a man. No, they can't. You know why? Because that's how God said it is. Well, but I feel it doesn't matter. Let God be true and every man a liar. I, I looked this up online in preparation for this meeting, trying to get a handle on exactly how many genders the other side is saying there is. And one of the more common numbers I could find was that there's 112 genders according to the other side. Anybody here that's raised livestock understands how stupid that is. And you know why. And it's not because of your experiences raising livestock or your feelings about that. It's because of what God said. But I'm going to show you that this will always get out of control. 
because this is not the biggest number. It was the biggest one I could find a few months ago when I was digging this stuff up. But I saw a headline the other day that this woman has come out. Yeah, she was a woman. And she said that gender actually is within this infinity cube. And what she meant by that is there's an infinite number of genders. Now, she didn't say that because she concluded that from any revelation from God. She didn't say that really because of any solid evidence. That's based on one thing and one thing alone. I feel, I think. And that's a demonstration of mankind's inability to craft our own path. The same root problem that's behind that is the root problem that's behind all the wars and all the chaos and all the injustice and all the other things that are going wrong amongst man because we can't be trusted because my decisions and my ethics will always bend towards what I like and whatever my problem is and it's going to allow me to have my problem and be okay And that might seem like it would work until we come along to somebody else that's got a different set of problems that wants to allow a different set of things that gets in the way of me and mine gets in the way of theirs. And before long, you've got chaos. And that's exactly what we've had throughout human history. And anybody that doesn't see it has their eyes shut tight. It's obvious we can't be trusted to make the rules. And we need God's governance. This is marriage. This is not marriage. And God made male and female. And we are his creation. And he is at liberty and within his limitless authority to decree it so. That's how it is because that's how God says it is. Hebrews 13 and 4 says, Marriage is honorable and all in the bed undefiled, but whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. Marriage is honorable in all, and God defined marriage as a male and a female. And within that marriage, intimate relationships are honorable in all. They are undefiled, he said. But you take intimacy or sexual activity outside the marriage, and you've got whoremongers and adulterers. And he said, what I've been saying all morning, you'll get your day in court. God will judge those things. And someone says, but I really feel like this is what I want. And so in their minds, what they want becomes right. Until we keep going and we find something that somebody else insists that they want. And we want to say that that's wrong. This afternoon's study, we'll talk about some of that. And it descends into chaos and conflict. Let God be true and every man a liar. Matthew 19, 4 through 6, Christ taught us to honor marriage based on the created order. He answered and said to them, Have you not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh. Therefore there are no more twain but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man put asunder. <laughs> and this teaches us that marriage is holy. That it's special and marriage is what God said it is. And we should honor that institution in our loyalty to that institution in submitting to the will of God. Well, but I want. Well, but you know in the animal kingdom, and you see how humans act today in all the different perversities that are so unfortunately common, 
and you find out people are acting like animals. And we don't want to say it's wrong because it gets in the way of human freedom until we get to the idea of animals turning on one another and killing each other. And we see humans doing that, and then all of a sudden we want to say, well, wait a minute, let's pump the brakes. (laughs) Well, I thought we were making the rules. Let's let God be true and every man a liar. What about sin? You see these little things where people say, you are enough. I know you feel bad about yourself and all of it. You are enough. (coughs) I understand we want to be positive and we want to encourage. I understand that God loves us all and he's deemed us all worth saving in spite of ourselves. And that by faith we can come before God in obedience and obtain mercy and have our sufficiency. But that is in Christ and alone outside of Christ. You're not enough. You're just not, and I'm not either. What we are is broken and we're sinful. And the reason that's true is not because of how I feel about you or how you feel about me or we all feel about each other. It's because of what God says. In Genesis 3 and verse 6, when the woman saw the tree was good for food, it was pleasant to the eyes, a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat and gave also her husband with her and he did eat. This is the record of mankind's original sin, eating the forbidden fruit. And what did he say about it in Romans 5 and 12? Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world and death by sin, so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. In that sinfulness or a sinful nature was brought upon mankind, we're inclined to do things we shouldn't do. And the reason we are is because of what happened in the Garden of Eden. And that's what Paul is teaching us here. And so we can all honestly join with the words of Romans 3 and 23 and say, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. I'm not enough. And you're not either. We are deficient. We're weak and we're powerless to help ourselves. I know you're lovable because God loves you. And he sent his son to die to save you. And that's true about us, true. But the reason that's true is because we're not enough. That's why we need Jesus. That's why we need saving. Proverbs 20 and 9, who can say, I have made my heart clean. I'm pure from my sin. We can't scrub it off. We can't do enough good things to gloss it over. We can't fix it. We have to accept it. Well, but I don't like that feeling. I mean, we're fixers. Aren't we? Guys, don't you have that impulse that you see something that's broken? You're kind of inclined to, well, I need to fix that. That's what we want. That's what I want. But humility and honesty demands that I admit, I can't do it. I can't. I can't clean my sin. That's why I need a Savior. And that Savior is Jesus, and he's the only Savior. John 14 and 6, Jesus said to him, I'm the way, the truth, the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. Jesus said, I'm the only way. I know there's a lot of good people in the world that don't believe that. I know that. And I know there are a lot of voices in the world that want to make people outside of Christ somehow okay. But we can't wish people into salvation. We can't overwrite God's decree that says my son is the only way. And the reason he's the only way is because he's the only acceptable sacrifice for our sin. 
I've got to have the Savior, and he's the only one that meets all the requirements. Acts 4 and 12, neither is there salvation in any other, any other, for there's none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. He's the only one that can authorize the salvation. His name is the only authority because he's the only one that lived life free of sin and perfect and was the perfect sacrifice without blemish and wouldn't stay dead. He's the only one. Nobody else in human history has met those qualifications. And he's there by God's boundless love and provisions. And God is right. And anyone who would say to the contrary is speaking against the voice of God. You know that's true, not because we like Jesus, but because God said so. And so he warns us through the words of 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 through 9, to you who are troubled, rest with us when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. He's given us clear warning. His son is the only way, and to reach his son, we've got to obey the gospel. Well, I, I don't think it's that way. I'm, I mean, you may not. You don't have a throne and you don't have a gavel, and I don't either. Obeying the gospel is necessary, and it has nothing to do with me standing here saying it. It's true because God said it's true. My place is to be humble and accept. It doesn't matter how much I wish it could be different or whatever opinion I might have. I've got to let God be true. Jesus tells us how to obey that gospel in Mark 16, verse 15 and 16. He said, go to all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believes and is baptized shall be saved. He that believes not shall be damned. That's how you obey that gospel. You believe and you're baptized. You're baptized as a believer. Because you believe in Jesus, you obey that gospel in baptism. And then you're saved. You know why it's that way? Because that's how God said it is. And we're going to let God be true. And everyone else, a liar. John 12 and 48 sums it up rather well for us when he said, He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my words hath one that judgeth him. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. We started out this lesson with the idea that God's word is the standard because he's our creator and that we all get our day in court to argue with that if that's what we want to do and we close this study with a warning from Jesus his word is the standard and you'll have your day in court but in that day in court the word of God will be the standard that evaluates us all don't you want to be right with him Hey, I, I can't do it. I know you can't because I can't. But with God, all things are possible. And through Christ, he's made a way. Where we can do it by the power of his sacrifice. We can be made clean from what we can't clean ourselves. And we can, in humility, not a disdain for our fellow man, but in humility, submit ourselves to the will of God and live life accordingly. 
And I hope that's how you want to live today. Thank you for listening to today's sermon podcast. If you have questions about what you have heard or would like to know more information, please contact us by emailing cfcwheelerarea at gmail.com or look us up on Facebook or Instagram and send us a message there.